Welcome to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Visit joy.org.au to find out more about our Joycasts. The Escape Pod on Joy and via podcast at joy.org.au forward slash escape pod. And now you're on Escape Pod. How exciting. You're here with Russ Masterton and Joe Pryor. Uh, of course, I had that little jaunt over to uh, Hoi An in Vietnam. Get so, out of town, as they say. That's right. So for uh, a week, uh, I really did just absolutely revitalise and re-energise myself at the Nam Hai Resort, which is a it's a GHM, I think, or GMH property. GMH, yep. Yeah. Um, and really, there is something... Very special when you're at a um, a destination where the staff are absolutely superb and operating as a team, and, and that's that's what happens at the Nam High. I mean, as, as I said repeatedly to to many of the staff, you you can have all of the swimming pools and all of the palm trees and uh, every inch of grass you know manicured to an inch of its life, but if you don't have the staff to actually welcome guests and be hospitable, then it's just another resort. And we know the Nam High is more than just another resort. It you know, is. Your own personal butler. You do. You've got your own swimming pool. You do. You've got uh, the most exquisite food that you can get locally. Absolutely. Your own, your own dining villa as well as your own bedroom villa. Okay, sounds very nice. Were yeah. you pampered? Did you massage? Oh, Did you absolutely. massage? Absolutely. The day spa there is actually out... Uh, over on top of the water, Ooh. it's they've, they've built an internal lake, and uh, I think that was created because they needed the uh, soil from there to build other parts of the resort. So they created their own lake, a bit like we did with Albert Park Lake. We needed a gotcha. we needed something to put the shrine on, so we decided we'd take the. Uh, the ground out of that part of Albert Park <laughs> and we now have Albert Park Lake. So a bit, bit the same at the, at the Nam High on a slightly smaller scale, but absolutely stunning. Um, and the, the other thing that I loved about it was the diversity. Uh, understanding, of course, it, it's a you know five-star resort, so there is a, man, a monetary um, barrier. You know, you can't get away from that. It, it is what it is. But the, the diversity of the staff... Uh, in terms of both, um, you know, whether they're part of our our community in terms of the rainbow community or whether or not they were from different parts of the world. And the same thing with the guests. And there was this wonderful harmony. It, it really was a lovely place. I think, and what we were talking about before and, and, and what most people don't know about um, Vietnam is that um, uh, the government there has, has been very accepting of, of gay marriage. And so one of the, one of the newest... Um, oh, they're to, right with it. They haven't got a problem. Ex- absolutely. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, um, the Vietnamese are right up there with the rest of the world. What, one of the new, um, newest tourist um, um, meccas over in Vietnam is, is, is gay weddings. And if you're going to get married, you can't go past Hoi An. It is the wedding capital of, of Asia and it's so beautiful. Look, it, it definitely is. It's, it's so romantic. And then if you're into uh, a bit more of the Mardi Gras style with the, the coloured lights, well, Da Nang is just the place. I mean, <laughs> it takes kitsch to a new yeah. level. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing, baby, until you've seen those lights in the evening in Da Nang. You just cannot possibly believe the colour combinations. The pink and white ones are forever indelibly printed in my mind. 
You lucky girl. You needed the break. You've come back yes. totally revitalised. I love it. Definitely. Spoilt, spoilt silly. And now... Um, we should get on with our um, special guest for this afternoon. Uh, while Gibson and I were up in Sydney, we managed to run into uh, Kevin Sumptian, who is the CEO of the National Maritime Museum. Wow. And of course, as you do, you just run into him in Sydney. That's right. Well, you know, you're, you're in the know with many people, aren't you, Joe? Well... Uh, especially submariners. <laughs> I've, got everyone, I've got this thing for submariners. So, submariners, submarines, seamen, right. you've got it all happening. So if people have not been to the National Maritime Museum in Sydney, uh, it's in Darling Harbour uh-huh. and it is definitely worth putting on um, the uh, to-do list. Fantastic. You might even need you know, to, to do two trips because... Uh, you can't do everything in a day, and uh, it really is. It, it's immersive and, it, and it's great fun, and it uh, makes you look at things from such a different perspective. Awesome. So let's, uh, without further ado, let, let's hear from Kevin. Kevin, good afternoon and welcome to the Escape Pod. You have the um, fantastic role of being the director of the Australian National Maritime Museum. Tell us a little bit about how you came to be here in, in Sydney in this role? Well, good morning, Joe. Uh, yes, I, I've just celebrated four years in this uh, wonderful job, being the director of the Australian National Maritime Museum. Um, and before then, I was working in London for uh, nearly five years, um, overseeing the redevelopment of the Royal Observatory, the National Maritime Museum, and Cutty Sark in readiness for the London Olympic Games. Um, but I, about 22 years ago, was an original curator of the Australian National Maritime Museum and I've worked in numerous cultural institutions both in Europe and in Australia, but this is a wonderful job. It was a great opportunity to come home four years ago and uh, I've enjoyed these last four years. And so it sounds like you do like to travel. I do. I do like to travel. Um, I, I, I am a, uh, a son of an Air Force family, in an Air Force family, and I grew up in Cyprus. Um, then I lived in the Netherlands and spent some time also in Germany. And my family is also kind of based in South Wales. So in between postings, we'd always go back to uh, Tembe in South Wales, where all of my family was based. Um, but I kind of caught the travel bug. Um, did some university in South Africa, did some studies in North America, did some further studies in London, and this kind of job as well means I also get a chance to bring exhibitions from around the world to Sydney. So I'm kind of moving all the time, but at the moment, I've, the last four years, I've been here in Sydney and very happy to uh, do the wonderful things that we do here in Darling Harbour. And I think it's important for um, many of our um, listeners when we do travel, we inevitably come across museums and they, they play a huge part in many travellers' itineraries. Um, how, how do you see the Australian, the National Maritime Museum, how does that, in your mind, fit into visitors' itineraries? Oh, look, we strive to be a kind of what we call a must-visit experience here in Sydney. Um, we are particularly focused on our overseas visitors. Yep. Indeed, 
over 35% of our visitors are from overseas and it's a very large and growing component of our visitors, but still most are Sydney-siders. But having said that, most of our Sydney-side visitors as well, many of them have had museum experiences around the world. So like it or not, they are using those measures to see whether or not you are indeed a museum that gives them a quality experience like they may have had when they've returned possibly to Europe and possibly to a place like Athens or you know, always constantly being measured by visitors. They don't necessarily have to be overseas visitors, but obviously we have a lot of visitors um, from Sydney itself, which are constantly looking to see whether or not uh, the museum that they love here in Sydney is as good as those that they might be visiting overseas. And I mean, you've touched on a really interesting subject that is the, the quality experience and, and how that is, is today defined. I mean, I, I imagine that when you started out as a curator here um, over two decades ago, what would um, pass muster mm -hmm. uh, then would have no hope today because there's there's an expectation that there will be a, a digital immersive experience. I think that's right, Joe. And also what's changed in the 20-odd years I've been working in museums is that 20 years ago, most national institutions around the world were free. And I think it's fair to say, growing up in museums at that time, there in many institutions was a, a culture that you might produce something and the visitors would simply come along and enjoy that. Now, as most of our institutions are charging an admission fee, I think we're much more sensitive to what our visitors would like to see. Um, and in that way, we take much more seriously the views, the opinions, the ideas even of our visitors, who are, whether we like it or not, choosing sometimes between spending money on coming to a museum or going to a gallery or indeed now for young families whether or not they'll pay for all the family to go to the cinema. Whether we like it or not we are part of a broad um, series of decisions that people are making with their precious leisure time to choose where to spend it. So I think that for me has been one of the big changes has been the fact that most of our institution now are, are levying an admission cost and that has required many more of our museums to think more carefully about the visitor experience. So how all of a sudden do curators get creative to, to capture the audience? I mean, you know, that, that, that's a big jump from what I think traditionally a curator um, would have gone into that profession. Uh, look, I, I think that's part of the, I think the, the challenge and actually the beautiful part of the job of being a leader in a museum is ensuring that there is always a license to be experimental. There is, whilst we're sensitive to what visitors might want, I always say to, to my curators, I never actually want to provide um, simply for what they expect. I think museums are safe places for dangerous ideas. They need to be places where we can encounter experiences for instance, that we won't find in the home. We're not going to get through our PS4. We are in a place where I think we've got more latitude to explore ideas and concepts that really should push people, uh, push expectations, challenge some ideas, that 
that's kind of the heart of what a good museum should be doing. I'd, I'd hate to be in a place that always just met my expectations. I think being challenging and being able to take people on journeys to encounter ideas that they wouldn't otherwise get in the newspaper, on the television, on their computer console, on their PlayStation, is really, really important. And that's really the, the key to good curatorship, is having the freedom to explore those ideas, but also understanding what the visitor may or may not um, have seen before, may or may not have appreciated before. It's kind of, a, it's, a bit, it's a bit like chemistry. You are mixing up uh, visual and tactile and digital experiences and hoping in that alchemy to create something that is indeed going to take the visitor on a journey and get them exposed to some new ideas. And we, of course, have been hearing from Kevin Sumptian, who is the CEO and Director of the National Maritime Museum of Australia up in Sydney. And he's had, uh, that was a really poignant thing that he left us with about uh, safe places for dangerous ideas is what uh, museums are all about today. And I think that's, uh, that's a very interesting comment that I think could be interpreted many different ways from the political level, uh, perhaps down to the very tangible we like the changeable. We, we certainly do like the changeable. Anyway, uh, Kevin has got a little bit more to talk to us about, particularly uh, the fairly new installation that they have there, which is known as Action Stations, which includes the refurbishment of, of a submarine. So it's your chance if, if you do like a submarine or if perhaps uh, a destroyer is more your style, you can actually get on board both of them. And I'd have, love and have to. A I'd love to go and see inside a sub. I don't know what it is. Well, I just can't imagine. I, I I noticed recently someone said something to me about a um, a, a sunken sub um, found from World War Two, and I, I wish yeah. I could remember the exact lo- location. Um, but they, they found this submarine from World War Two, and there were seventy two um, bodies from from then on board the sub. And I just, how do you get seventy two people in those things? They don't look very big to me, and they're, living there, they're not very yeah. big at all. So here's your chance. As I said, if you're up in Sydney please, you know, consider putting, uh, and you're going around Darling Harbour, you know, you want to work up an appetite, pop into the the National Maritime Museum. But uh, let's listen to to Kevin while he tells us just a little bit more about this brand new uh, exhibition that they have known as Action Stations. You must think that you achieve that with Action Stations. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what Action Stations actually um, encompasses? Yeah, Action Stations is... is is a beautiful piece of architecture uh, by the principal architect from FJMT, Richard Francis Jones. Um, It's a structure that floats between between two very complex warships. And, I mean, it's fascinating because, I mean, yes, there are amazing um, exhibitions that travel to museums the way they do art galleries, but this one you can only see here. I mean, action stations you can only see in Sydney. That's right. Um, because it, it does involve yeah, it, a, sub, a submarine. A submarine and a destroyer. That's right. So these are two uh, retired Royal Australian Navy vessels that uh, were at the height of their career in the Cold War in the 1970s. They are the two largest objects in Australia's national collection. So there's nothing bigger than a destroyer in any museum. So they're the elephant in the room. <laughs> they are the elephant in the room. Um, and we have great... Um, uh, respect for the two vessels that what we didn't want to do was laden the submarine or the destroyer with too much exhibit structure 
basically they are an object. We treat it's them. very free form, isn't it? it the, is free the experience form. you can go either which way. Yeah, and, and what we do layer in there are some very discrete experiences and a soundtrack. But what we carefully do with the warship pavilion, which floats between the two vessels, is we unpack the story of those people who have actually worked, lived, built, and also the families of those people who worked, lived, and built um, those vessels. So at the moment, they're complex machines without human beings. And what the warship pavilion does is bring the human element. It starts to animate the two vessels and prepares you to go on board and then familiarizes yourself with some of the places in the warship that were often populated. It might be um, the dinner table, it might be the command room, and with a very large-scale interactive cinema, we, start, we show you what those places were like when they were in operation, because whether we like it or not, those warships are very complex machines, but the human beings on board are what actually made those machines work. And without the humans, you don't actually understand what was going on. And so Warship Pavilion, in a strange way, is, is actually the, the way to put the people back on board the two warships. And, and it is a fascinating experience. I mean, the, uh, how did you organise the, the funding and the expertise to come together to create, for example, that cinematic experience that you can get at the beginning? We were very lucky. Um, the Royal Australian Navy itself was uh, very willing to provide young sailors um, who we then had to outfit in 1970s uniforms. So we spent about six months researching and making about 70 costumes authentically from the 1970s. And they were provided as both actors and extras and we did a little bit of preparation so that they looked and sounded like professional actors. And then we did bring in one of Australia's top um, uh, production companies to actually put a high-definition panoramic uh, film together for the museum, which is really two four-minute films that, that talk about what it is to go to action stations in a submarine and what it is to go to action stations on a destroyer. Yeah, it, it's a pretty full-on experience, actually. It really is. It's great fun. And then the other instrumentation that you have that's available for people to, to touch, see, feel um, in the floating pavilion, some of the digital work that, that's in those pieces is, is quite amazing. I mean, that must be at the forefront of that technology as well with the, the touch screen um, digital, particularly... Um, I was amazed with the the piece that has the location of where all the um, submarines are that have sunk. That's right. We're, we're, what, so the, the archaeological part of this. Yes, the maritime archaeology. Because yes. what we also do in the Warship Pavilion is, as the National Maritime Museum, we, we have a particular focus looking after the heritage particularly the wreck sites. And they're not all here, are they? No, no, no. There's, there's some off the coast of Turkey. And yes, they, and, and we focus in particular on looking after some key wreck sites. Um, the one you mentioned off Turkey, that's Australia's second submarine, AE2. And at the moment, it's the largest scientific uh, conservation experiment going on anywhere in the world today, live on the seafloor of the Sea of Marmara. There's 10 tonnes of zinc anodes hanging off that submarine, effectively pushing out the salt ions and treating the submarine, if that's the right word, in a way that will 
preserve it for another hundred years. So that's a live piece of uh, very complex conservation science going on 70 metres underwater that this museum looks after and makes sure that it completes its cycle in 10 years' time. And how do you bring that back to being relevant to perhaps the visitors that come to the museum? What how do you let Australians know, for example, that that's there? And as you say, what, what, what we do is we're doing some storytelling about that in the Warship Pavilion. Um, it is the largest Anzac artefact, so to speak, from that time in the First World War when, when Australia was in. I think we might have Anzac overload. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think there's a couple of nations that could do without hearing it for a while. I know. And, and the angle we take on it is not so much looking actually at that story as so much as a contemporary story about what it is to be a contemporary museum because really that is a use of very complex chemical science to preserve an artifact on the other side of the world 16,000 kilometers away that is the almost it's kind of the backroom work that we do at the museum which people are fascinated they actually kind of want to know what is the business of museums and for us, a lot of the business is conservation work, it's maritime archaeology. So it's kind of letting the visitor into some of our secrets, some of the work that we do that often you don't even know is going on. Absolutely. I, I imagine there'd be a lot of people who come into the museum and don't even um, have that in, in their mind or on their radar screen at all. No, that's right. I mean, often we think museums are simply, let's say, buildings with showcases and a little bit of digital media. And most of our national institutions are actually places where a lot of high-level research and often a very high level of conservation research is going on. Um, and really only in the last few years have we recognised that the visitor has a particular appetite. They would like to know what is indeed going on. And that's part of what this Warship Pavilion does, as well as simple things like just giving the visitors tours behind the scenes of our conservation labs, there are some incredibly gifted people who are doing wonderful work, be it with textiles or paper or metals, and they're kind of scientists in their own right. And certainly these are the stories of the people that work in museums that often the visitor really, really would like to connect with. Yeah, I mean, strategically, that, that's the innovation to, to drive new um, uh, income streams and, and, and sources of, of attraction for the museum? Yes, look, we're constantly looking for, obviously, opportunities to, to not only build these new experiences, but find ways that we can support our own, um, our own operation. So, again, Warship Pavilion is a new experience that, um, whilst we have an admission fee, we provide that experience as part of the admission experience at the museum and of course in these kind of times that we live in now being more self-sustaining funding wise is really very important and uh, the museum has to think about those kind of business questions all the time. Joy 94.9 is a GLBTIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. Now, Russ, it must be nearly time for your rant. All right, I've got a couple of small rants because I'm not going to blow on rain on your parade today because I know <laughs> you've got a biggie, Joe. Okay. <laughs> All right, so my small rants are check in times at hotels. Okay. Oh, yes, yes, okay. Just had a customer email me this week from Frankfurt in Germany and say, gee, you know, thanks for putting us up in this lovely hotel. It's. Uh, 
10 minutes to 2 o'clock and we've just flown all the way from Melbourne and the check-in person in reception has just said, sorry, you cannot check in until 2pm. <laughs> and it's sort of like, oh, honestly, really? Really? Oh, I bet there's a German word for that. Yeah, I know. It's Feinhund or something. I don't we know. Need Mark. Where's Mark yeah, when we need him? Exactly right. So I don't get it. I really don't get it. I think if you... Um, I love the hotels where you've got someone sitting behind the counter and you just say, look, I've flown all the way from Australia. You know where that is. That's a 27-hour flight away. Me, bed now. Me, shower now. And, you know, they open up the room and there it all is for you. None of this stupid rules and regulations. We don't wear that. Don't like it. No, No. I I always find that if you um, realise that you're going to be arriving outside of the schedule, if you just let them know Mm. in advance, I've not had too many problems with that. No, I think the other thing you could probably ask the reception or or ask for the hotel manager and just say, look, okay, I know I've paid for a room. I know what your rules are. Are you booked out tonight? Yeah. Um, and if they're not booked out, well, then you can say, well, why can't I have a room now? Yes. I don't... Um, if they're not at 100% occupancy. Don't absolutely. agree with it. Now, the other rant I have is travel insurance. Okay. Yeah. Now let's, look. Let's hear it. We're here. All right. Be careful. Is is um is I guess Ooh, we need our legal legal back. Yeah, we do need our legal legal because you need to read the fine print. Um, travel agents are certainly trained. They have to do a, a course on travel insurance before they can sell it. Right. Um, and there are ov- obvious questions that even you can ask your travel insurance provider. So you know, by all means, um, book your holidays and your travel insurance through a travel agent. They know all of this stuff. But of course, a lot of people. People now are being tempted to book their travel insurance um, using separately. their credit card. You, well, yes, yes, yeah. it's, it's either part of your credit card deal uh, or separately. Exactly right. Exactly. Right. Now the fine print is basically if an if an aeroplane goes unserviceable, you're in the toilet. So hopefully the airline will look after you, which yes. means, um, say for example. Um, Joe Bloggs Airline um, decided not to fly. Okay, so then you would ham them and say, well, my insurance doesn't cover the fact that your plane's not working. Yep. So I want um, I want you to give me a refund. So it all, all goes well there. However, say you're off to Sydney for a weekend. You're going to see, you're going to the Maritime Museum. You're yep. staying at a fabulous hotel up there. But both of those things are non-refundable. Travel insurance won't cover it. Yeah. Because they come back and they say, well, hang on a minute. It's not our fault that XYZ Airline um, couldn't fly you to, to Sydney that day. So we're not going to pay you. It's a, I have a real problem with that. I just, yeah, I just think that if you're going to buy travel insurance, it should cover everything. I don't and is there, in fact, a product that does cover everything? I'm going to investigate that and let everybody know next week because I don't, I don't agree with the fact that, you know, oh, yes, we're a travel insurance provider. We'll, we'll look after you. You're going to have this fantastic holiday unless they're going to cover some small incidentals that are not your problem, not your fault, not on, not yes, on. Yes, things yeah. that you as, as the consumer can't possibly influence. Yeah, so watch this space. Next week we'll come up with some decent travel insurance providers on the escape pod. Joe, oh I want you to hand it over with the, the biggest ranch you've oh, ever had, please. Okay, look, at, it's, maybe it's not that big now in hindsight, <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I grew up where as you approached um, doors to a building or even doors to a lift or an elevator, if you were uh, coming in, you waited until the people had come out. Right. That's me. That's me. That's so, polite. Yes. What has gone wrong? All uh, of a sudden, there's been this reverse 
of the code. Are you say we're turning Japanese? Uh, well, <laughs> I really think so. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very concerned because it seems as though there's now this idea that, well, whoever's there first can just barge their way either in or out. It's like, well, well no. You let people egress so that you can then come in. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think there's any there's, – there's nothing wrong with That's being polite. There's just a polite. little bit of etiquette. You know, let people out – before you try to actually come into the building or uh, into the lift space. I saw the worst of Rude on my trip to India. Did you? Yeah, mm. I just saw this Australian guy in business class. Uh-oh. And he turned around and basically he was up the front and he said to the staff on Air India, um, block the exits. I'm in business class. I'm coming out first. <laughs> and... They didn't, and, and unfortunately, they opened up the econ- economy class door first, and so they didn't. But sometimes aircraft have to. have to because of yeah. where the bridge is. And the economy um, customers walked out the door because the door was open. They'd That's been right. in the plane long enough, they'd had enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And As he right. went off the he planet. Went absolutely off the planet. And I'll tell you what. Aussie travellers, do us all a favour. Be nice to everybody. Yeah, he, he could have surely just um, popped in the line and just calmly exited. I mean, I, I know that you you do like to be ahead of everybody else and get through customs quicker, etc., etc. But um, sometimes everything doesn't go your way, Mr. Australian Man. I know, I know. He wasn't, he was just no, it wasn't kosher, Joe. I didn't, I didn't like it. No, it's bad behaviour, isn't it? Thanks for listening to a Joycast from Joy 94.9.